Good morning from a very empty sanctuary. Several weeks ago, as we were just starting to understand what was happening in our world and how this was going to impact our lives, including church as we knew it, I was brought to Exodus 14, 13, and 14. I shared at least part of that scripture in earlier communications, and as I was praying about sharing this morning, the Lord brought me right back here to Exodus. It seems fitting for several reasons. First, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that begins the Holy Week, the days between Jesus' triumphant entry on a donkey into Jerusalem and his crucifixion on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. This week includes the Last Supper, as it has become known. This was Jesus' celebration of the Passover meal with his disciples. It's where we get communion or the Lord's Supper. The Passover celebration is the recounting of the story of Exodus and God's rescue, his redemption of his people Israel from slavery. Where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 14, 13 and 14, we read these incredible words. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. In Exodus, we see how a sovereign God rescues his people. But we also see how a sinful people try to dictate to God how he is supposed to do the rescuing. And when we cannot see a way out, they wanted to retreat. And yet God has an answer for us. Fear not, stand firm, be silent. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that we can still gather together as your children, beloved by you, that we can celebrate this holy week together. Father, I pray for each and every one who is joining us this very day. Father, I ask that your peace would overwhelm them. I ask, Father, that there would be joy in our heart for knowing that you are a good, a gracious, and a loving God. You are here in the midst of the crisis. You are here in the midst of the confusion. You are here in the midst, Lord, of what is happening in our lives. And more than just you being here in the midst of it, Lord, you have a purpose for us in this time. And so I ask, Lord, may you... Just use me in this time. May the words that I speak be your words. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you fill me afresh. That, Lord, words of life, words of conviction, words of truth would just come forth to encourage, to challenge, and to have us grow as we focus our eyes, our hearts, and our lives upon you, Lord Jesus. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon in 1863 preached a message on this very passage. He titled it Direction in Dilemma, and he started his sermon with these remarkable words. God's great design in all his works is the manifestation of his own glory. Any aim less than this were unworthy of himself. It is then the Lord's will to manifest his glory to the sons of men. 
but how shall the glory of God be manifested to such fallen creatures as we are? Man's eye is not single. He has ever a side glance towards his own honor. And so it is not qualified to behold the glory of his God. Vanity has covered our eyes with scales more dense than those which fell from the eyes of, the, of Saul of Tarsus. We are always prone to put a high estimate upon what we are or may be or can feel or do. Now listen to these remarkable words that he shared. It is clear then that the self must stand out of the way, that there may be room for God to be exalted. And this is the reason, the true secret why God brings his people oftentimes into straits and difficulties that being brought to their wit's end and made conscious of their own folly and weakness, they may be fitted to behold the majesty of God when he comes forth to work their deliverance. That is why Spurgeon was called the prince of preachers. And what an amazing point he is making. God delivers not because we are worthy, but because he is worthy. God rescues not because we are good, but because he is good. Our sovereign God manifests himself in the affairs of our lives, not to bring us glory, but because it brings him great glory. And we see this in those very words out of Exodus. There is no question that the migration out of Egypt is the single most important event in Jewish history. More than anything else in history, this event gave the Jews an identity, a nation, a founder, and a name used for the very first time in Exodus. Ben Yisrael, the children of Israel. The Exodus is foundational to the story of the Jews. In the same manner as Paul said that without the literal physical resurrection of Christ, we Christians are fools. Without the literal historical exodus, the Jews are nothing but fools. There is nothing for them to be rescued from, nothing to be set apart for, nothing to be promised. So the exodus should be important to us as well. Exodus 14, unsurprisingly, is preceded by Exodus 1 through 13. To set things up and remind us how we got to Exodus 14, let's recap this journey to the sea. In order to understand how the Jews got out of Egypt, we have to understand how they got into Egypt. I'm going to give you 14 chapters of Genesis in about three minutes, so hold your hats. Exodus 35 brings us to the point where God's covenant with Abraham and Isaac is confirmed and passed to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Amongst them was Joseph, who was Jacob's favorite. Joseph's brothers didn't like that very much. And after Joseph had a dream and shared with his brothers that one day they would bow down to him, they had enough of him, stripped him of his famed coat of many colors, threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery, which brought him to Egypt. After being sold into domestic work in Potiphar's house and refusing to offend God with Potiphar's wife, Joseph was thrown into prison. In prison, Joseph gained some notice as being able to interpret dreams, which ultimately led him to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. Joseph was given the interpretation by God, showing that there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Showing himself to be a faithful man, 
Pharaoh appoints Joseph to be in charge of the storehouses of Egypt, making him the second most powerful man in Egypt. When the famine came, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt looking for food, and what they found was their brother. Joseph's forgiveness of his brother brought them and many Jews to Egypt to escape the famine. The Jews flourished in Egypt over many years, growing in number and in influence. Brings us to Exodus 1, where we see a new Pharaoh comes to power. He saw that the Jews were a threat, and he enslaved them. Although they were enslaved, they still prospered, and so Pharaoh called for all of the Jewish babies, the male Jewish babies, to be killed. This is the environment into which Moses the Magnificent was born. His mother, in an attempt to save him, placed him in a basket amongst the reeds on the river. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house as a man of privilege. Yet he knew he was a Jew, and when a soldier treated a Jew unfairly, Moses killed that soldier, buried his body, and he fled to Midian. Years later, as he was attending to his father's, father-in-law's flock there, he came across a burning bush. God spoke to him there, telling him to return to Egypt. God had heard the cries of his people for freedom and was going to use Moses to accomplish his purpose to restore the Israelites to the promise. God uses Moses as his negotiator. One thing that you want to make perfectly clear is don't try to negotiate with God. You will always come out on the losing side of that transaction, as does Pharaoh, as promised plague upon plague is brought upon Egypt. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, boils, hails, locusts, darkness, When we get to the final plague, the death of the firstborn, God prepares and saves the Jews from this fate with the command to sacrifice a perfect lamb and spread the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their homes. After Pharaoh's own son dies, he relents and releases the Jews. As they hurriedly gather together, they flee into the desert being led by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. The pillar of smoke and fire was God's presence, which the Bible tells us never left them. God leads them through the desert and at one point has them turn themselves around, a ploy to confuse Pharaoh who has since regretted his slave force leaving and is now after them to recapture them and bring them back to Egypt. This is where we find our journeying band of Jewish brethren in Exodus 14. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hareth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. The pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire, God's very presence, have led them to this specific place for a specific reason. But it seemed to the Jews at the time to be the absolute worst place that God could have led them. There is a debate amongst biblical scholars as to exactly where this location is. Yet what is clear is that they were hemmed in. They had nowhere to go. They can't go left or right as there were likely cliffs and encampments, a fortress on one side. In front of them was the sea. And behind them, was Pharaoh's army closing in moment by moment. 
let me ask, do you ever feel that way? Like life has closed in on you? Nowhere to go? Forward looks like drowning. Back looks like imprisonment. To the left and the right, they seem impenetrable. So what do you do? You do what every red-blooded American does and every red-blooded human actually does. You complain. You whine. You get angry. You run around trying to figure out what is going on and what you're going to do about it. God spoke to Moses at that moment and he told him where to go. God's presence led all of Israel to that very place. They had been witness to what God had accomplished in Egypt right before their very eyes, and yet fear drove them to lashing out at Moses and not trusting God. In verses 10 and 11, we read, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? To them at that very moment, bringing them out of Egypt wasn't an act of redemption, but an act of murder. I don't know about you, but far too often I find myself there at the sea the water lapping at my feet, staring out into the abyss of open water before me, looking back at the road behind me, scared, frustrated, angry, alone. I'm all good seeking the Lord's will until I get to that beach. And yet it's at that beach where God meets us. I want to go back to what Spurgeon said it is clear then, he said, that self must stand out of the way, that there may be room for God to be exalted. And this is the reason, the true secret, why God brings his people oftentimes into straits and difficulties, that being brought to their wit's end and made conscious of their own folly and their weakness, they may be fitted to behold the majesty of God when he comes to work their deliverance. And this is exactly what Moses reminds the Israelites right at that very moment in verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses knew exactly what to say. God may have commanded Moses and the pillar of fire and smoke had brought them to that place. But Moses said those words. It was Moses' faith that promised him that God was faithful and that God would prevail. Do not fear. Do not run away. Do not even speak. Be still and watch what God will accomplish. Moses didn't know at that moment that God was going to have him raise up his staff and part the Red Sea. And yet Moses knew that God was going to do something to bring glory to his own name. 
And this is the main point that I want to share with you this morning. I know that many of you are worried right now. I know that some of you have lost your jobs. For most, the future seems uncertain. Kids are out of school, out of sports, out of routine, and out of sorts. If and when you go to the store, you look upon everyone with suspicion. And we certainly miss gathering together to pray, to fellowship, and to worship. Somehow our gathering together always made us feel like the world was going to be okay. Even when in our little corner of it, it may have seemed a little crazy. And now we can't even do that. So what do we do? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm increasingly convinced that the Lord has led us to this very moment as a church and as a people. So the question is, why would we be facing the sea with our enemy at our backs and no apparent escape? Because God is making it very clear he's the one who is in control. Governor Cuomo just a few days ago said that he was there to provide facts because if we have facts, we have control. The, facts, the fact is that there are no facts that will ever lead to control. The only fact that we need to know is that we are not in control. As I've said so many times, control is an illusion. The only thing that we can control is how we respond to God. And this is where I've become increasingly convicted over the last days and weeks. How am I responding to the present situation. I think that far too often I have found myself longing to return to the way that things were to get back to normal. Truth is, I really want to go back to Egypt. I don't understand why we are here, how we even got here, but I want to go back. I think that much of our efforts are focused on how do we get back to Egypt our prayer is, Lord, let us endure this. Lost my job. The kids are driving me crazy. I'm isolated. I want to just go out to dinner and enjoy time with my friends and family. Why would you lead me into this desert to die here? Much of the work of BCC over the last several years has been about sharing the gospel with a hurting world that needs a savior. Social distancing precludes us from the normal avenues to accomplish this. I believe what God is asking us now isn't how will you help the world to take him seriously, but will we take him seriously? You say, hey, Jeff, how are we supposed to take him seriously? Well, thanks for asking. As a good rabbi always does, I'll turn the question back on you. What are you hoping for? What are you praying for right now? Leonard Ravenhill said of prayer, Now I say very often, and people don't like it, that God doesn't answer prayer. He answers desperate prayer. Your prayer life denotes how you depend on your own ability and how much you really believe in your heart when you sing, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The more self-confidence you have, the less you pray. The less self-confidence you have, the more you have to pray. 
The scriptures say that the disciples went to bed, but Jesus went to pray. As he was, as was his custom. It was his custom to pray. Now, Jesus was the very son of God. He was definitely anointed for his ministry. If Jesus needed all that time in prayer, don't you and I need time in prayer? If Jesus, is, if Jesus needed it in every crisis, don't you and I need it in every crisis? Folks, we are in a crisis indeed, but I think that the crisis is greater than we are seeing. There's a crisis of faith that should drive us to our knees and proclaim God's goodness and his faithfulness and his unfailing love and his tender mercies and his grace being sufficient in our weakness. When you find yourself standing at the sea, waves rolling up on your feet, please pray and know that God has us right where he wants us. And we just need to remember, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you that we can come before you, that you are a God who hears the cry of our hearts. Father, I ask that we as a church would come to you desperately seeking you at this time. Father, I know that there is a lot that is going on. I know that there's a lot of struggles that are happening. And I ask, Father, that your hand be upon each and every one of the families here. Father, at this time, the sense that I have is that it almost seems wrong to ask you to lift us up. Father, I ask that your hand would drive us down to our knees in surrender to you. Let this time that we have be a time of great glory to your name because we are a people who are desperate for you. Father, I just ask that our hearts would not seek to go back to Egypt. But Father, our hearts would be set in knowing that you are about to part the Red Sea and you are about to bring us to a land of promise and hope. So Father, may our faith increase. May our hearts just be set upon you in a greater and greater measure each day. And we just ask you these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.